0: We could open your Bibles to Acts chapter two, Acts chapter two. I hope everyone had a good holiday this past week. Of course, Monday was Memorial Day here in America, uh, a day where we celebrate the opening of the cottages and the first day of summer. Uh, Actually, we celebrate uh, those who died, or we remember rather, those who died fighting for our country. So I hope you all had a a good time of remembrance and maybe got to go to a parade. Uh, You know, holidays are are great. Uh, Most people have the day off work. Uh, It's a day you can gather with family and friends and uh, just spend time together, eat some good food, and uh, really remember something very important. Uh, Holidays tend to do that. They tend to be a way to carve out time and space so that we can focus on what is most important. And in fact, the things that we choose to celebrate as holidays, that we carve out time and space for, actually reveal what is most important to us. The term holiday in English comes from uh, the two words holy day. So uh, holiday is, is from holy day, which is that they were dedicated or set apart for a specific remembrance. Well, you may not be aware today is a holiday a Christian holiday, uh, though this is an oft-neglected one. Uh, We tend to celebrate Christmas and Easter and sometimes throw Good Friday in there. Uh, But this holiday, I would argue, is as important in the history of the world uh, and certainly in the life of the church. Today, of course, is Pentecost Sunday. Now, we know from the Bible that the Apostle Paul himself celebrated Pentecost, and in fact, structured his journeys around uh, the day of Pentecost. And Pentecost is the day where Christians celebrate when God came to church. Now to some of you that might sound a little strange. What do you mean God came to church? Isn't God always at church? Isn't that why we're at church? Uh, Not necessarily. Uh, It is entirely possible for religious activity to be taking place and God not to be in it. And so for Pentecost, it's not only a day to remember the unique and uniquely significant day of 2,000 years ago, but it's also a chance to remind ourselves what it looks like when God is in our midst. And so our big question that we wanna ask today is, how do we know if God is in our midst? So Acts chapter 2, this is a time when Jesus had risen, he had ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he had left the church with a promise. He said, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes, until you're clothed with power from on high. And so now, the day has come, God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, comes to church. So, we're just going to read the first scene. We're going to cover the whole chapter, but just the first scene in verses 1 to 13, if you'd follow along. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? They're filled with new wine. So I want to argue today that when God comes to church, he makes a name for himself. When God comes to church, he makes a name for himself. And the first way we see that taking place in these first 13 verses is that he empowers his people to speak. The first four verses, we see this unmistakable evidence of God's presence. The spirit had showed up in a powerful way and the sights and sounds were reminiscent of how God had showed up in the Old Testament. Uh, When God came down at Mount Sinai, when he appeared to various prophets or to various people, uh, it was always accompanied by a great sound, a loud sound and with fire. So this marked off that it was God who came and those who witnessed it in the Old Testament uh, had a tendency to fall on their faces to beg for it to stop, Uh, they would confess their sins in the midst of God's presence. And I wonder for those of us who are familiar with those Old Testament stories, to imagine ourselves in that room on that day, what would we have expected to take place? Uh, Maybe if you've seen the movie Indiana Jones, you might have expected somebody's face to melt off or something like that, this loud sound and this fire, What's, what's God doing But that's not what happened. When God came, it says the tongues of fire rested on each person and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came to dwell in every Christian. In other words, God's presence is no longer reserved for those with unique positions of authority, but it's for all those who have genuine faith in Christ. God has come to dwell with his people. And perhaps equally surprising is that they began to speak. After these first three verses, there's no further spectacular appearance, there's no faces melting off, but there's speech. So you and I tend to live in such an emotionally driven culture that when we imagine the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we tend to think of some sort of emotional or physical experience. But the evidence from the scripture points time and time again that when the spirit comes, God's people speak. They're empowered to speak. And so for us today, as we remember Pentecost, uh, we won't experience the kind of sights and sounds that they would have experienced in the room that day. But we too see the evidence of God's presence among us as his people are empowered to speak. In the book of Ephesians, when the Apostle Paul says to be filled with the Spirit, it's all about addressing one another and singing and giving thanks and and other passages teaching one another. The evidence of the Spirit is in the speech. And besides the wind and the fire, there was something else unique uh, to the events of that day, which was the saints had this supernatural power. That's verses 5 to 13. When they spoke, they were able to speak in the heart languages of people uh, from all over the world. Presumably, based on the evidence of the question, uh, that these were languages they had not previously learned. A literal translation of verse 8 is How is it that we hear each of us in our own dialect in which we were born? So it wasn't just that they heard, it was that the church was speaking in those languages, certainly a miraculous event not to be repeated, but it reveals to us something about the character of God, which is that God wants his people to know him in their heart language. This is why the great missionary project of translating the Bible into different languages and missionaries learning new languages as they go out to the various tribes and people groups is actually an essential part of Christian missionaries. Because in Christianity, God wants to be known in the heart language. This is not like Islam, where the message is corrupted if it's translated out of Arabic, or Judaism, where the children still go to Hebrew school and they claim that the language of heaven is going to be Hebrew. Uh, I didn't get the best marks in Hebrew, so that's not good news for me. (laughs) But the good news is, in Christianity, God wants his people to know him in their heart language. And this overcoming of language barriers is actually in itself an act of redemption. See, way back in Genesis 11, everybody spoke the same language. You can go back and read it for yourself sometime. But in Genesis 11, everybody spoke the same language, and they used their common language to defy the commands of God. God had said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, In Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, The people who spoke the same language said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. In clear defiance of God's command, in seeking to grasp for glory that did not belong to them, they used their language to defy God. But it wasn't just disobedience to God, of course it wasn't good for them. It wasn't good for humanity to live in the kind of uh, sinful way that they were living. And so, at the end of the story, in chapter 11, verse nine, says the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So in Genesis 11, because of their defiance of his commands, God brought judgment by confusing the language of the people. But here at Pentecost, God overcomes that judgment on sin. He redeems it by empowering his people to speak in all these heart languages. And unlike Babel, where the people wanted to make a name for themselves, at Pentecost, God made a name for himself. See, it's not just that they were saying something in their language, Uh, It's not like they're going around, like, donde esta el baño, you know, for those of you who know Spanish. Like, it's not just that they were speaking in their language. It was that they were declaring, verse 11, the mighty works of God. God was making a name for himself. And so we ought to know today that we can be confident God is in our midst when he empowers his people to declare his mighty works. See, when we come to church, we don't come to make a name for ourselves. We don't come to hear about what we have done or what we can do. We come to hear about what God has done. And a church that is only focused on its activities and its possibilities is actually a church devoid of God. Because when God comes to church, he makes a name for himself. But the miraculous sign is not sufficient. Uh, The speech is the clear thing, right? So the people ask the understandable and important question in verse 12, what does this mean? We're hearing these languages, we heard the sound of the wind, probably didn't see the fire that might have been just in the room there. What does all this mean? And of course there's some, there's always cynics in the crowd who don't know God, and they mock what's going on, accusing them of being drunk. So Peter gets up to preach. If you notice, despite the mocking in verse 13, Peter is not offended by their mocking. We'd do well to follow his example. Instead, he makes a joke out of it. So he begins his sermon. Look at verse 15. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. In case you didn't catch the joke in that, uh, they can't be drunk yet. It's only 9 a.m. That's essentially what he's saying here. And thus began the great tradition of opening a sermon with a joke. But in the substance of this sermon, it is clear that Christ is exalted. When we talk about the mighty works of God, there are no mightier works than those that focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to be able to do justice to this entire sermon. It's, It's masterful. It's beautiful. I encourage you to study it further on your own. I want to highlight the key ideas to give us the the flow of this sermon, to understand the gist of what Peter's talking about here. There are three key Old Testament passages that he points to, and the first is in Joel chapter 2, which you can see quoted in verses 17 to 21. Now, it's a lengthy passage prophesying the coming of the Holy Spirit, but I want to draw your attention to a couple of key verses. First, look at verse 19. How how will we know that the Holy Spirit has come and that the last days have begun, that God is beginning the restoration of all things? This is what he says. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Then he goes on to give the graphic imagery of wonders and signs. But what are really the wonders and signs? How will we know what those are? Well, look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. In other words, he's reading the Old Testament passage, Joel chapter 2, and he's keying on these uh, markers, these identifiable markers of what God was going to do when the Spirit was coming, and he links them to the person and work of Jesus. Jesus did the wonders and signs that Joel prophesied about. The way we know the Holy Spirit was coming, the way we know that God was making everything right, is that Jesus came doing these wonders and signs. But there's a problem, isn't there? Verse 23, this Jesus, the wonder worker, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Think about the weight of that for a second. The one that was the man of God, all throughout the Old Testament, there's these men of God that show up. The man of God, the man of God, Jesus, has come into the world, doing the very wonders and signs that God said would happen as he's about to begin the restoration of all things, the inauguration of the last days. And you, killed him. You crucified the wonder worker. What do we do about that? Well, it's evident, of course, from the crucifixion that the world does not know God. Just like they didn't recognize God's spirit when he showed up and accused the church of being drunk, they didn't recognize God's son when he showed up either. Now, there was a certain immediacy to their guilt Uh, Because these people were scattered from all over the world, it's reasonable to think that they had been at the Passover feast just a few weeks earlier when Jesus was crucified and would have stayed, uh, hence the dwelling in Jerusalem. So there's a certain immediacy to their guilt, but you and I would be fools not to recognize that Jesus went to the cross because of our sins. The man of God attested by wonders and signs. The man of whom it was said he does all things well. The man in whom Pilate, could not find any guilt, was crucified for our sins. And therefore, we bear the guilt of his crucifixion as much as the people back then. But thankfully, God was not going to entrust the hope of the world to our evil or ignorance or unbelief. verse 24, God raised him up Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In fact, he quotes from his second text at this point, Psalm 16. David, I'll I'll reference just a couple of verses. Look at verse 27. David in Psalm 16 says, You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy one see corruption. Well, that's very interesting because David was dead as a doornail and he was buried. And in that day, they still knew where his tomb was. You want to go to the gravestone? I'll show you, David is still there. You can dig up his bones if you want. So what is David talking about? Verse 31. David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Wow. Talk about the mighty works of God. God raised Jesus from the dead. And over and over in the New Testament, it is clear God wants us to know the very power that He worked in raising Jesus from the dead is at work in us. He wants us to know that power, those mighty works. Throughout the book of Acts, this becomes the chief talking point. Every sermon, every conversation, Jesus is alive. And you may not have thought this this morning when you came in. But the reason you needed to come to church this morning is to hear once again that Jesus is alive. Those are the mighty works of God at the very center of the gospel message. That he did not stay dead, but God raised him up. It might not be the kind of emotional experience we expect when the spirit, uh, we tend to think the spirit is working But we know the Spirit is working when the mighty works of God are declared that Jesus has risen from the dead. And not only has he risen from the dead, but he's been exalted. He's been exalted to the right hand of God, as it says in Psalm 110. And because he's been exalted to the right hand of God, he's poured out his Holy Spirit. The reason all the stuff was happening that the people were asking, what does this mean? It means that Jesus died and rose again and is exalted to the right hand of the Father and he has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit that you might know the mighty works of God. Talk about grace. And because he is seated at the right hand of God, he is seated there until all his enemies are made his footstool. And over and over in the book of Acts, the second piece of the gospel is not only that Jesus has risen from the dead, but by virtue of his resurrection, he's the one that's been appointed to judge the living and the dead. And so when God comes to church, his people speak, and Christ is exalted. God's people love to hear about Jesus, don't you? You came to church this morning, most of you, hopefully to hear about Jesus. Tell me again the story of Jesus. I've heard it before, but tell me again. Tell me the story of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Tell me again the story of Jesus because I know it's true and because it satisfies my longings as nothing else can do. And so we actually resist the work of the Holy Spirit when we come to church expecting our preferences to be met. If church is primarily about our preferences and our desires, then we ought to beware that God might not be in it. But if we're truly oriented to Christ, to his resurrection, his exaltation, his offer of pardon and forgiveness, we'll talk about in a minute, and his coming judgment and reign then we could be confident that God is here among us. So when the Holy Spirit came that first Pentecost Sunday, Christ was exalted. And then look at the aftermath. When Peter finishes speaking, the final way we know that God is among us is there's real change that takes place. Verse 37, it says they were, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's a powerful, the Bible has powerful imagery. When you really stop and meditate on what's happening there, they were cut to the heart. And I wonder, maybe you've been coming to church a long time. Has the gospel ever cut you to the heart? Has the realization of your sin that led Jesus to the cross, has the weight of that ever really hit you? And not only the consequences of sin, I mean, there is a place for the fear of judgment, and certainly all of us have the fear of man and the consequences that come with that. But I mean, like a real heaviness that I have rebelled against God. I am in the wrong. We have a hard time saying that. We have a hard time saying, I'm wrong. But to feel the weight of our sin and to feel the gravity, of Christ's resurrection and exaltation. And to know the truth that he's coming one day to judge. You know, when you hear that word judgment in the scriptures, think evaluation, right? Who's going to evaluate what has taken place on this earth? Certainly we can't entrust that to popular culture. We can't entrust that to the history books. We can't entrust that to our law courts. Who's going to rightly decide This is what was right, and this is what was wrong. Well, we know because of the resurrection that it's Jesus. And we know, if we've examined our hearts, that we don't measure up. So what do we do with that feeling? What do we do with being cut to the heart? Well, Peter didn't leave him hanging. Verse 38, he says, repent, and be baptized every one of you In the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Talk about the mighty works of God. The amazing grace of God. Turn. Turn from your wicked ways. Stop going down the road of resisting God's good authority. Turn from that. Why would you go on living in a way that is not good for you now and is only going to bring judgment on you in the end? Why go on living that way? Turn. And when you do the mighty works of God, He can forgive your sins. Everything that cuts you to the heart about hearing about Jesus, you can be forgiven if you repent. And when we repent and we find the offer of pardon and forgiveness of sins in Christ alone, not being a good person, not pretending like we're good enough. He also gives the gift of the Holy Spirit that we might experience joy and happiness and victory over those sins that have plagued us for so long. And not only that, but he empowers us to speak as well. The gift of the Holy Spirit means every Christian can testify that Jesus is alive, that he's coming again, and the way to be forgiven is to repent now. So who in their right mind would refuse this offer? Well, for 3,000 of them that day, they didn't refuse it, they received it. Verse 41, those who received his word were baptized, We'll be baptizing some tonight. I'd encourage you all to be here, 6 p.m. They were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now what does it mean that they received his word? Now there's a whole sermon to be preached about what it means to receive God's word. But just a quick reference to 1 Thessalonians, it'll be on the screen. We thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. When you begin to understand that God is really there, that he has really spoken in time and space, and you begin to live in response to that word as though he's really there, that's how you know you've received the word. It's not just that Somebody shared this message with you and you really look up to that person. That could be an important element. But you hear the word as God's own word, as though he was speaking directly to you. And then finally, they were devoted to God and to one another, verses 42 to 47. Again, so much to unpack in this text, but I wanted us to get a feel for Pentecost, and so we've got to go all the way through the end of the chapter. When people love one another, truly, when they're devoted to God and generous towards one another in response to the gospel, you know that God is in it. You know that God is in it by the fruit that it bears. This is how my father is glorified, Jesus said, that you bear much fruit. This is how we want things to be. Let me just read the passage quickly. We've got time. Says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs, there they are, being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is what we want life to be like, isn't it? We don't want a life of loneliness and isolation. We don't want a community of people that just throw out sort of the verbal grenades on social media at one another. Nobody wants to live like that really. So how do you live like this? It's gotta be the works of God, the mighty works of God. And many of us here who have genuinely trusted in Christ, we know what this is like. We've tasted the heavenly gift. What is it like when God dwells in the hearts of his people? See, our greatest problem is not out here. It's not our circumstances. That's usually what we want to change, what we think the problem is. What we needed was new hearts, new hearts to love God, to be devoted to him, and to love one another the way we were always meant to, that's the kind of life that people wanna live. But you don't get that kind of community unless God is in it. Everybody wants community today, but not many want the kind of community that means submission to God and his authority, and the kind of devotion to one another that means even when we offend one another, we bear with one another and forgive one another. But that's how life should be when the spirit is present. We love one another. And the change is apparent because God was in it. What a day. Can you imagine having been there that day? To see the kind of sights and sounds, but more importantly, to experience the presence of God in a renewing and glorious way And so it's important, I think, as a church that we remember that day, when God's people first began to speak with power about his mighty works, when we first boldly began to exalt Christ from all the scriptures, and when we first tasted the real change, the fruit of repentance, of life in communion with God and communion with one another, There's a preacher that I really respect whose name is Dick Lucas. He's in his 90s now, he's an Anglican guy. But he was talking about this passage, he said it's kinda unique that uh, churches identify themselves in different ways, like Baptist churches, for instance. Every church that's truly a church of Christ is a Baptist church, meaning they baptize. If they're obedient to the command of God, they baptize. Uh, Whatever you think about the theology, there's the society of friends. Uh, every church should be a society of friends, right? We should be a group of people that love one another. Well, he said, every church should be a Pentecostal church, right? I don't mean the official denomination, of course, but I mean reflecting the evidence of God's presence the way he showed up at Pentecost. So my prayer for our church is that increasingly we would see the evidence of God at work among us, and glorify him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, too often we, we mistake cheap substitutes, like emotion, or uh, a certain uh, feeling, or uh, whatever it is, we mistake those things for his true presence. But Lord, I pray that we would have an increasing awareness of the unity of the Spirit's work with the Word, that the Word and Spirit are uh, uh, indivisible. And so I pray that we would respond to your Word as it really is, the Word of God. May we exalt Christ in our gatherings, in our lives as we go. We pray in Christ's name, amen.